Father, we do thank you that we're here. And uh, we look forward to uh, Jesus speaking um, these words, not only to this church that is the Church of Philadelphia, that was the faithful church, but these are words for us. And I pray that we would be attentive, that we would just take a minute to make sure, a quick second, that our ringers are off our phones because we want to be free from distractions. And Lord, we want to be attentive to the things that you want to uh, tell us and, and say to us through your word. And so, Lord, um, help us be a people, a church that are teachable, soft before you, our hearts, our ears open to you. And, and Lord, uh, that we may take these things and, um, and, Lord, apply it to our own lives and to this church, Calvary Chapel Greeley. Lord, I thank you that we're here. And, and we are reminded as we go through the scriptures, and particularly as we will continue to go through the book of Revelation, that this world is not our hope. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We are citizens of heaven, and we look forward to the coming of the Lord. We look forward to when you're going to come and take the church out of here, even as we're going to see the promise given to us, uh, to this church, uh, a promise given to us that you will take us out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth, the blessed hope. And I pray that our hearts would be warmed and it would help us to keep a, a perspective of eternity because we can see what's going on around us. And Lord, it concerns us. Uh, it's it's. Um, something that uh, we see as the darkness, we see that the evil, we see that the confusion is growing rapidly. And you said that in the last days that it would be perilous times. So we shouldn't be surprised at that. But Lord, we also have a message of hope. We also pray for revival in our own heart and in this church that we can reach out to others because we know that your son is coming. And Lord, we want to be ones that take heed to what Jesus said, that the harvest is ready, it's plentiful, but the laborers are few. So Lord, thank you that we're here, that we have our Bibles open, that we're going to be in the word of God, take it, work it within our hearts, that it may be, uh, Lord, uh, fruitful in our lives as we take heed to these things that we read tonight in Jesus name. Amen. So to the church of Philadelphia, which is the sixth church of seven churches that Jesus is writing a letter to. And I hope that as we've been taking our time going through chapters two and three, sometimes when uh, th there is a study done on the book of Revelation, that uh, these uh, two chapters can be rushed through uh, because everybody wants to get to the good part, to the future, and, and what's going to happen in the tribulation period. But I find these seven letters to the seven churches, every time I go through it, I, I study it in my own devotion, or I've studied it before in Bible studies, that I, I always am blessed and benefited by going through these letters. Keep in mind that in chapter 1, that there is John, he's exiled to the island of Patmos, and, and as he heard a loud voice, he turned to see the glorified Jesus. And he is standing there in the midst of seven lampstands, which represents the seven churches that he is going to actually be dictating to John 
John is writing these things down. So chapters 2 and 3 should all be in red letter. And Jesus turns to the first church there, seven churches in Proconsular Asia. They were not the only churches in Proconsular Asia. They were not the only churches there that existed at the end of the first century. It is interesting that Paul the Apostle, that he wrote to seven churches in his epistles. So here Jesus writing this letter to the seven churches there in what is today modern day Turkey and he turns to the first one Ephesus and he begins to address them and he commends them and the things that they're doing well and then he would also give them correction and then he gives a, a promise for those who overcome an eternal promise that we have seen that's the pattern of these letters I know your works this is what I commend you on. This is what I'm going to correct you in. And then for you who overcome. And an overcomer, keep in mind, is defined in 1 John chapter 5, verse 5, that he who overcomes is one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So we saw that the church of Ephesus was a church commended on being a working church, standing on truth. But he says, nevertheless, despite all that, I have this against you. You've left your first love. And, and even in that is such a powerful lesson because as we see the application, the application is that these are seven literal churches there at the end of the first century that had these characteristics that are described to us. And, and the church of Ephesus was just that. They were a church that was working. They were a church that stood for truth. But they were the loveless church. And Jesus said, you have left your first love. So you need to go back and you need to repent and you need to return to your first love. And that is me, because if you don't, I'm going to remove your lampstand. And we learned in that that Jesus will not be in a church where there is no love. So there, right there, we begin to look at it. Not only are these characteristics described in these churches, but then we can look at it ecclesiastically in that, that if Jesus was to write you uh, and me this church a letter, what would he say to Calvary Chapel? To the messenger of the church of Calvary Chapel Greeley, to the messenger probably to the pastor. And that's a very sobering and, and serious question for me. Jesus, what would you say about our church? How would you commend us? Are there things that we need to be corrected in? And there's no perfect church. We know that. But as individuals, too, not only making the application as a church, we want to be doing these things that Jesus commends these churches and what they are doing. But also, we want to turn away. We want to repent of those things that he says as he brings correction to them that you need to repent. And and we need to be open to that as a church. And also we can make the application individually. Am I one that I work and I serve, but I'm not really loving the Lord? I've left my first love. You know, we can apply these things to our own lives. If Jesus was to write me personally a letter, how would he commend me? What would he correct me in? And never be afraid to present your heart to the Lord and say, Lord, where's their correction? And where do I, I need to turn away from? Attitudes, actions, behaviors, whatever. And to be like David that said, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, Lord. And so that's why these letters are so powerful. And every time I go through it, I get tremendously blessed. Uh, I, I, they apply to me deeper and more 
fuller than ever before because I want to be open to what the Lord is saying. So that's why these two chapters are so important and so powerful in this, this outline given to us in the book of Revelation. Write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1. Write the things that are, chapters 2 and 3. And then write the things that will take place after this, chapter 1, verse 19. That's going to be chapter 4 to the end of the book of Revelation. That's all future. So now we're going to look at the the Church of Philadelphia. There's one more application to be made here as we have looked at these seven churches, as you know, that there are scholars and Bible commentators that say that they also represent seven successive periods of church history. So the Church of Ephesus represented the apostolic age uh, from the time of Pentecost all the way up to the end of the first century. The Church of Smyrna, which was the persecuted church, represents that period of 100 A.D to 300 AD where 6 million Christians were persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. They were martyred. Um, and then you have the church at Pergamos was the compromising church. We know that uh, in 313 AD, Constantine would declare that uh, Christianity is the official religion of Rome. So Satan not being able to defeat the church, the church was strong during that time of persecution. So he decides to join the church. And of course, with that declaration came a lot of compromise into the church. And then there's the, the church of Thyatira, the corrupt church. And then last week we looked at Sardis, the dead church, the dark ages. And, and he says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So now we come to this era, uh, era, era of, uh, as we look at it, of, of church history that's going to be known as the great missionary era that took place from about 1650 to 1900. And we're going to talk about that in just a bit. But let's begin to read in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. So the sixth letter written to the Christians in Philadelphia. You probably know that that word, the name Philadelphia, means brotherly love. Phileo. There's different words in the Greek that speak of love. The Greek language is, uh, is um, you know, a, a, a language that uh, is very specific. There's uh, four different Greek words for love. There is agape love, which speaks of God's love, right? Then there is eros love uh, that speaks of uh, sensual love. There is stargate that speaks of a love between brothers and sisters or parents and children. And then there is phileo, which speaks of brotherly love. And, and here, to the church in Philadelphia, it was the youngest city of the seven churches that are listed in chapters 2 and 3. All the other churches in, in the cities that they were in, that those cities had a longer history than the church of, of Philadelphia. Philadelphia uh, was, um, it, it was founded in about 200 years before Jesus was born. And it was started by a man named Eumanes II. And he left Thyatira, history tells us, and he started this little community, Philadelphia. Philadelphia was believed to be the smallest of the seven cities, but it was a city that became fairly prosperous. It was known for her beautiful buildings, and it was nicknamed the Little Athens. And when Eumanes died, he was succeeded by his younger brother, Attalus, Attalus II, matter of fact. And the two brothers were very, very close. 
And so when Attalus took over uh, after his brother's death, he, he was the one leading the city. He was overseeing the affairs of the city. He named many of the beautiful buildings after his brother, Eumanes. He minted coins with his brother's image on the coin. He was always talking about his brother, always mentioning him. And eventually it became known as Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, because of these two brothers, uh, the love that they had for each other, the loyalty that they had for one another. So to the church of Philadelphia, these things says he who is holy, who is true, and he who has the key of David. Now, as, as I've pointed out going through these, these letters, that in our studies, Revelation chapter 1, John had that, that revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, in each of the seven letters, Jesus gives a part of that description of himself that we read in chapter 1. And that description is given on how it relates to the church that Jesus is speaking to at, at that time in history. So in Revelation chapter 1, you recall in verses 17 and 18, John, after seeing the glorified Jesus, he fell down as though he was dead. And Jesus put his right hand on me, John writes, and said, Don't be afraid, for I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Now, when I was a young Christian, and I think I made this comment when we were going through chapter 1, when I first read that, that Jesus, that he has the keys of Haiti and death, I pictured Jesus, you know, with this big key ring, and he's, you know, locking people up and throwing them, you know, into Hades and, and into hell, and, you know, there goes the steel door. But over time, as I began to grow, and I'm sure that you perhaps have this same thought as you begin to realize the goodness of God and the grace of God and grow in that, that I realize that when it says that he has the keys of Hades and death, it's not just to lock people up. He is the judge. He's ultimately going to judge everyone, but it's to set people free. And he is the one who has provided to let us out of damnation. Uh, and that is the work that Jesus did on the cross. The key to free us from the bondage of sin in this world. And he is set the captive free. I don't have to go to Hades. I don't have to die spiritually. So Jesus uses that description of himself to this church, Philadelphia, brotherly love. He pulls this from chapter 1 to reiterate it to the church here of Philadelphia. I'm the one who has the keys. And then he adds this interesting a phrase that did not appear in chapter 1. I have the keys of David. Now what does that mean? He says, I have the keys of David. Well, you can go back. I'm going to read it to you. Perhaps you might uh, jog your memory in our study of Isaiah that we did before we went through the book of Revelation. But in chapter 22, in verses 20 through 23, I'll read it to you, that Isaiah writes that it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Helkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. 
I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he will open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. And I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. So as we read that in Isaiah, in that chapter, we read before those verses that I just quoted here, there was a man by the name of Shebna. He was the treasurer of the kingdom of Judah during Hezekiah's day. And remember that when you read the historical books of the Old Testament, that Hezekiah brought revival into the land, and, and Judah was very much blessed and doing well. Well, he was the treasurer. He's the one that had the keys to the, the treasuries of the kingdom. And he was the keeper that of the treasurer uh, in on behalf of the king. And he had this keys that he would wear it around a large key, key ring around his shoulders is what we just read here in chapter 22 of the book of Isaiah. But Shebna, uh, Shebna did something very foolish. He had the key of David to the kingdom of David to the treasuries and the riches of the kingdom. And what did he do with it? What he did was he built this very splendid tomb uh, for himself. And uh, it, it was uh, built uh, in a glorious way. Um, it was used, the temple money, to build this splendid grave, this, this monument for himself. And which is foolish because it wasn't like he could enjoy it, right? And, you know, people do that even today. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting, you know, um, headstones and things like that. But I've read articles and one of the trends that we see in some, you know, things that, you know, when people uh, are, want to buy a casket or say goodbye to their loved ones, I mean, they'll sell them all kinds of things. We'll, we'll pipe in music, you know, into the casket, things like that. And, and people really kind of get into that. And I hope for you and for me, we always keep an eternal perspective that our bodies are dead in the ground. We are alive. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And, and that's what it's important for us to keep that eternal perspective. So here was Shebna. He did that. It was a grave situation. And he also got all these chariots to ride around in. He was trying to be a big shot. And, and he's riding around in the chariots. He has this huge monument that's being built. He's using the, the treasury money that, you know, belonged to the kingdom. And Isaiah comes to him and says, Because you have taken the riches of God and used them on yourself, and making a grave and getting all these chariots to ride around in, you have now lost the key of David. You, you had opportunity, you had authority, you had uh, privilege, and you have blown it. You have misused God's money and resources. And the key was ripped off of his shoulder and given to another. And we know that, as we just read, it was given to a man whose name was Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And Isaiah said to him that he will be fastened like a, a peg, like a nail. He, he would use those keys wisely and properly, the responsibility and uh, the authority of overseeing the riches of the kingdom. Now, Jesus has the keys to death and Hades. He's given us victory over death and, and Hades. And, and 
He did it as he laid that cross on his shoulders, didn't he? And there was a peg, there was a, another word for that. It might be in trans, some translations, a nail. He allowed his hands to be nailed to that Roman gibbet. And he died for you and for me, and he rose from the grave. And Isaiah would write in chapter 9, verse 6, that, that the government shall be on his shoulders. He's going to come, and he's going to rule and reign, and we're going to rule and reign with him. It's so exciting. And so here in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says that these things says he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Jesus says this, that I am the one with the riches and the treasuries of the kingdom of God. I am the one that was nailed to the cross and has the key of David that opens doors. That is, he opens up doors. He is the door, John's gospel says, to heaven. He is the door to eternal life. He says if anybody else tries to come in any other way, then they're a thief and they're a robber. He is the door. What we're going to see in Revelation chapter 4 is John's going to hear a voice and like a door that's opened up. And he opens the door of heaven to you and to me because of his incredible grace as we come in faith in Jesus Christ. But he also listens, open doors of ministering opportunities for you and for me. This is important to share the riches of the kingdom and the good news of the kingdom. And I pray that we would do that wisely, that we would do that soberly. The treasures of the riches that we can share with others that are linked to us in our lives. As I said to you, that the, the Church of Philadelphia, you can make a case for it, that it represents that era of church history from 1650 to 1900. It is called the Great Missionary Movement. And it was in 1793 that there was a young man that he had a shop there in London and he was a cobbler. That is, he made shoes, he repaired shoes. And in his shop, he had a Bible that he read constantly. And he had another book, um, some of the writings of Captain Cook, who discovered the Sandwich Islands, or what today is known as the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, he sailed around the, the oceans, and he wrote in his, his, uh, you know, about his travels. And this young man, this cobbler, making shoes, repairing shoes, that he found himself being spoken to by the Lord. The Lord began to prompt his heart. And he said that I no longer want to make shoes. I no longer want to repair, you know, leather. But I want to minister and I want to, you know, repair the hearts of souls of men. And I want to do it in the far reaches of those areas that Captain Cook had written about in his journals. And that passion began to stir in him. And in May of 1793, as you read about it, he went into a little church and he shared with the people a portion, a passage from Isaiah, chapter 54, verse 23. Some of you are familiar with it. As we read that proclamation of Isaiah, chapter 54, to enlarge the place of your tent and, and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you shall expand to the right and to the left. It's such a wonderful verse. And the idea there of lengthening the cords and strengthen the stakes, that is, make the tent bigger. 
And that young man preached and he talked about how God was calling him to lengthen the cords and to strengthen the stakes and, and, and to expand. And he said, I want to go to India. I want to take the gospel message to India. And that just overwhelmed everybody because, you know, missionary work in the form of uh, sending somebody to a foreign land hadn't been done in so long. The church of Sardis, the period before that, the church that we looked at last week, that they had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead. They had lost their passion and vision for evangelizing and missionary work. You know what's a really important principle for you and for me as Christians? I think that sometimes that we become mundane and routine in our Christian walk is because we're not sharing with others. We're not sharing our faith with others. And you've heard the saying before, I'm sure that you have, that either you're going to evangelize or you're going to fossilize. And you see, we evangelize not just, you know, in giving and speaking the gospel. Yes, we are to do that, but in the way that you live your life. And as people see the reality of Jesus in you and that there's something different about you, and as you proclaim that, it's going to strengthen you. We are going to see on Sunday that Romans chapter 10 says to you and to me that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And as we're growing in the word of God and as we are taken in, we are also to take out. It's kind of like for those of you who are going to go to Israel with us in October. We're going to go to the Sea of Galilee. And we know that the Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee. And then it exits out of the Sea of Galilee. It's teeming with life and, and fish. And it's beautiful and it's lush. And, and it's, it's a beautiful place. And it's fresh water. And then the Jordan River continues down to the Dead Sea. And it flows into the Dead Sea. But there's no outlet of the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea, of course, the lowest place on the face of the earth, there's nowhere for the water to go. It evaporates, but it's dead. There's, there's no life into it. It's not fresh. And the same thing will happen to us if we're just taken in and we're taken in and we're taken in and we become bloated and we're not given out. And the way for all of us to really be excited in, in the things of the Lord as you begin to share with others. You begin to minister to your family members, to those at work. You minister to those who are linked to you in your life because we're all called to be in the mission field. And it's also true for a church. If we turn inwardly and we're not reaching out to others, then we will begin to fossilize as a church. And that's where deadness comes into churches is they forget to do that. They forget that there's a whole community out there that needs Jesus Christ. And we can get comfortable and we can get complacent. And we talked about those things last week. And I pray that we never come to that point here at Calvary Chapel where we turn inwardly and we just are taken in and, and we're not really reaching out. For you as a Christian, that you're taken in, but you're not reaching out. But you're praying and, and that you're giving and that you're supporting and you're involved somehow wherever God has placed you, an opportunity that he's given to you. Because Jesus has the key to, you know, of David, to the kingdom. And he desires for you 
as he opens doors to be used in ministry, to be a blessing to others. It isn't just about us. And I want to emphasize that. And I know I'm parking on it a little bit because we live in such a consumer-oriented culture and even in the churches that way. What's in it for me? And, and how do I like things? And, and how does it always benefit me? I understand that you want to be in a church that's going to bless you and where your kids are, are ministered to and the youth are, are excited at being here. We work very hard and prayerfully consider that we want to minister to you in that way where your children are learning the love of Jesus Christ and that the kids are growing in the Lord and excited. And we will continue to do that. But for you... You have something to give to others. There are people in your life that don't know Jesus Christ. Every single one of us, we know those people. And he opens up opportunities for us to share with them the riches of the kingdom of God. Share your faith with others. Give what you've taken in. Otherwise, a deadness begins to take place. And it will take place in this church. Well, this young man, this blue-collar worker who made shoes, um, he's not trained in the mission field, but he had a heart, and he said, I want to go. Kind of like Isaiah, who shall go for us? And Isaiah said, send me. And he went, and in 10 years, he was fluent in several different languages. He started a seminary, a couple colleges. The man was William Carey, the father of the modern missionary movement. And suddenly the church wakes up out of the air, the post-Reformation age. And William Carey sets the example. He went out, had a heart, and was, uh, you know, uh, a heart because he heard the call of God. And other men followed his example. I've said this, listen, your greatest ability, and for young people that want to get involved in ministry, I tell them your greatest ability is your availability. You can't be used if you're not here. You can't be used if you don't make yourself available. And those who have been, you know, effective in ministry make themselves available and the Lord will work through you. When you say, send me, I will go, I will minister, I, I will be in a part of it. So your greatest ability is availability and God's eyes go to and fro across the whole earth looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect towards him. And William Carey said, I'm tired of working on leather souls. Let me work on human souls. Another individual in his mid-20s looked at the example of William Carey, and, and, and he took a boat to China. His name was Hudson Taylor. You've heard of him. And the missionaries that were raised up from that time of church history in the 1800s that brought a great awakening in Europe and in America, uh, it's represented here by the Church of Philadelphia. George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley and Charles Wesley, Hudson Taylor, Dale Moody, Charles Spurgeon that was in London, the Prince of Preachers and other great Bible teachers and people were reaching out and ministry and missions was taking place. And the key for us here at Calvary Greeley is for us not to get bloated, as I said, but to be given out and sharing, especially in the day in which we're living in. Because the Lord's coming back soon. We are rushing towards the return of the Lord. He can come for his church at any time. And we, as I said, are all called to the mission field when we leave this building in our homes and across the street. And, and the key is that we are to be ones that we 
understand that the Lord has the keys to open up the riches of the kingdom for us. Remember the parable of the minas that Jesus told in Luke's gospel, the mina representing the gospel, the truth of God's word. We've all been given a mina. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to share it? Are you living the gospel, sharing it with others? How much the Lord means to you? I think about all the things that would be fun, you know, to be able to do vocationally as I sometimes look back at my life. There were so many different things that I wanted to do when I was young. And, and, um, but what I get to do now and what you get to do and what we're allowed to do to share the riches of the kingdom, that man is so incredible. So he is the one that gives us the opportunities, that opens the way, that provides. He gives us the word to share, to work to do, and, and um, he gives us the strength to do it. He enables us to do it. And as we depend on him, oh, he wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. And then when we go to heaven, he's going to reward us for doing it. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But the Lord is the one that opens the doors. He enables. He does the work. I'm allowed to be used of him. He wants to use you. And he opens those doors. And he chooses to use ordinary people like you and me. And he encourages us. He prompts us. And we need to be sensitive to his leading. So he opens doors that no man can shut. And he shuts that no one opens. That's the other thing we need to remember. There are times where the Lord will close the door. There are times that that I wanted to go in a certain direction. And the Lord closed the door. And he closes a door that no one can open. So If you're going in a direction that he doesn't want you to go, he closes that door. Maybe because it's not the time for it to be open. Maybe he has something better. Maybe he wants you to go through another door. But if he closes the door, don't try to go through it. You're going to end up whacking your nose on the door. Don't try to get a pry bar and pry it open. Because you're going to find that it's not going to work. And you're going to be frustrated. And so we need to very carefully and very prayerfully Lord, what are the open doors for us to go through? And to understand that there are times where he shuts the doors. And that's okay. We can trust in you, Lord. There have been times in this ministry where he shut the door. And I'm thinking, Lord, I thought we were going to move forward in this area. I thought we were going to be able to do this. And he shut the door. And that's okay. And I can look back and I can see that he was leading us in a different direction. That he opened those doors. So be sensitive to praying. You know, it takes real discernment, being led by the Spirit of God, and He desires to lead us, to give us a peace that rules in our hearts as we're praying about different things. And He promises, remember Isaiah chapter 30, that as we go to Him and as we wait on Him, that He will speak to us. He'll say, this is the way. Go to the left, go to the right. And then in verse 8, I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. We see that this church of Philadelphia, the Lord had nothing bad to say to this church. And I hope that we fit into this church. We here at Calvary Chapel, that we have these characteristics. This is, as I said, the faithful church is is a church that, that I want to be a part of. And three characteristics of this faithful church. Number one, they had a little strength. I have that underlined. 
You see, sometimes, particularly today, that the churches, that the, the the thing is, is we got to build and, and large and. Sometimes pastors want to get into the celebrity pastor mentality and be very popular. And sometimes we can fall into that success. We measure it according to the way the world measures it. How popular a church is, how popular the pastor is, how dynamic he is, all those things. Listen, God can bless a church in a large church, but not every church that God raises up is going to be a large church. And what I hope for us, that we would always remember this, and for me and my ministry, that he is our strength. We have a little strength here. Not this great big, you know, organization and, and, and putting our trust and in, in, in our strength is in numbers and buildings and budgets and staffs and programs and social media and all these other things. Our strength is in the Lord no matter how many people we have, how big our building is, we got a small building. Sometimes people come in and say, is this all you have? Yes, this is all we have. <laughs> this is all we have, and I'm thankful for it. And we use it over and over and over again every week. But our strength is in the Lord. And I remember when we started out, and we were small, and we had to pray, Lord, Lord, can we buy these chairs for the kids so they can sit in? Lord, will you... Provide for us so we can pay the electric bill. And I never want to get away from that. I never want to get away from depending on the Lord and praying and saying, Lord, will you provide? Lord, provide for us. Lord, breathe life into us. You're our strength. Lord, you're everything that we need. And I hope that we remember that even as he says, you have a little strength it wasn't a, a, something that was negative towards this church. He, he's saying that you're depending on me and you're looking to me because he is our strength in everything. And there are times where I can feel like, oh, we, we got a little strength. We're hanging on, Lord. And he says, you're going to see my faithfulness. Second of all, this is important. You've kept my word. You realize that, that when true revivals took place, as the Great Awakenings in Europe and America happened in the 1800s, that Jonathan Edwards and G. Campbell Morgan, Finney, Torrey, Moody, all these guys, they were men of the Word of God. And in my generation, as I saw men like Billy Graham and Pastor Chuck Smith, revival, the, the Jesus revolution coming out of the Calvary chapels, that they were men of the Word. May we keep his word because there is a diminished importance and priority of the word of God in many churches today. And as long as I'm the pastor here, we're going to go through the scriptures, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, because that's how we're going to grow. And we need God's truth today. And there are many Christians today, they are not discerning. And I don't mean to be critical or negative. But it's the truth. Because they're not being taught the word of God. I've talked to more people that have said that I went to church and never heard the book of Revelation. Our pastor said, we'll never teach that book. And it's sad to me. I've had pastors tell me, you shouldn't teach books of the Old Testament. It's not relevant. It's not for us today. 
And I think we are too. All of scripture is God breathed and it is profitable. That means from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation chapter 22-21. And the great need in the church today is to keep his word and believe in the infallibility, sufficiency, the inerrancy of scripture. That this is God's word given to you and to me. Do we believe it? Do we keep his word? I pray that we always will. We will as a church. I pray that us individually. And then thirdly, you have not denied my name, the deity of Jesus. Again, unfortunately, we see that in many churches today that they're denying the deity of Jesus, that he is the only way to salvation, that he is truly the son of God, God in human flesh that came and died for you. And for me, we see that there are those who say, well, he was a great teacher, a great spiritual leader. We believe in the sayings of Jesus. But they, you know, deny his name. You can't pray in the name of Jesus. All this stuff. And I pray that we would never deny his name. And in verse 9, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Apparently, there were some Jews in Philadelphia that persecuted the Christians. And we read and Jesus said something similar, of course, to the church of Smyrna as well. And, and we know that in the book of Acts that the early church um, uh, the Gentiles were persecuted at times, and Paul the Apostle in this ministry was, by the hands of the Jews. Now, Jesus is not saying, as some have suggested, that the Jewish people as a whole are of the synagogue of Satan. What he is saying here is there are Jews in name that persecute God's people. They lie. They're not Jews, just as it has been through the course of church history that there are those who call themselves Christians by name and they've done horrible things and they've persecuted the Jews. They're not really Christians. So that's what Jesus is saying. And who says that they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. And those who persecuted those Christians, they're going to know that God loved them and God loves you. And we know that as we end at chapter 8 of the book of Romans, that there is nothing that will separate you from the love of God. Not distress, not tribulation, not famine, any difficulty that we go through. Because sometimes we think when we're being persecuted, that, you know, when we're going through trials and tribulations, that where's your love, Lord? Listen, his love is always with you. You will never be separated from his love. And that's coming from Paul, who knew what tribulation and distress and famine and all that was about because he went through it. There is nothing that will separate you from the love of God. He loves you and he will always love you. And we can rest in that truth that is declared to us in God's word. And because, verse 10, you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial. Some translation is tribulation, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Listen, underline this verse. Extremely important verse. The Greek reads this. I will keep you, Jesus, given a promise to them. I will keep you out of and away from the scene, from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth. To me, that is a crystal clear promise from Jesus that he himself is going to keep us out of the hour of trial or tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. 
That phrase, to test those who dwell on the earth, we will see that phrase repeated. Those who dwell on the earth is a reference to non-believers. We see it in Luke's gospel as well, that Jesus used that term in Luke's gospel in the Olivet Discourse. But there's only one time in history that tribulation comes upon the whole earth. That's the tribulation period. There was actually another time, that was the flood, But this is later. Jesus says, I'm going to keep you out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth. He's saying, I'm going to keep you out of the tribulation period. To me, it's a very clear promise and it's a very comforting promise that is given from Jesus himself. He's not talking about temptations or tribulations that we all have. Jesus said, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. He's talking about the hour of tribulation that will come upon the whole earth and that is going to be seen in chapter 6 through 19. He didn't say, I'm going to keep you through the tribulation period. I'm going to take you out of and away from the tribulation period that shall come upon the whole earth to test those as he pours out his wrath in a Christ-rejected world on those who dwell on the earth. And when we get to chapter 6 through 19, we don't see the church. We see tribulation saints, but the church is not mentioned because we're going to be in heaven before the tribulation period. As God will pour out his wrath in a Christ-rejected world and he wakes up the nation of Israel, stay tuned, we'll get to that. He says, behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. I'm coming quickly, Church of Philadelphia. Prepare for my coming. That word quickly means sudden or unexpected, not necessarily immediate. Don't depart from what you're doing. You know, I open up doors that, that you can go through and, and uh, you have a little strength and keep my word and don't deny my name. And verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. An overcomer, I will make him a pillar, which speaks of what? Strength, stability, beauty. The only thing supporting the, the pillars is the foundation. And Jesus is our foundation, according to 1 Corinthians, where we find stability and strength and beauty through him. And you see, oftentimes when there was an earthquake, the only thing that was recognizable after an earthquake was the pillars because they were strong. He shall go out no more, promise given to the overcomer. That is, you will have a place of stability and permanence with God. And then I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. You know, after somebody wins the Super Bowl or World Series, you know, five seconds after they win, you know how they're advertising, get your T-shirt, you know, the Super Bowl champs or World Series champs or whatever, and buy these T-shirts, you know, for $2,000 and be the first one to wear them. Everybody wants to buy a T-shirt. They, they like a winner with a name on it. Well, when we go to heaven, he will write his name on us, meaning that we identify with Christ, with him. It speaks of having intimacy and relationship with him. And then he talks about, in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem will be described to us at the end of this book. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. I remember the first time that I was in Jerusalem, I was in a hotel, 
And there was this mural, this painting, this large painting of the new Jerusalem descending down upon the new earth. It was beautiful. I can remember it. And, and I just, it it's always has stuck in my mind. And so, you know, the last two chapters, speaking of the new earth and new, you know, heaven, and then the new Jerusalem, where we're going to be with the Lord forever, for all eternity. Do you see why I say this world is not our hope? This world is going to come to a disastrous end. We're in the world. We're to love those in the world, give hope to them. But Jesus Christ is going to come back and establish his kingdom. And so we have so much to look forward to. And we want to be able to have those doors open that we can share it with others. So, Father, we thank you so much for this incredible church that was back in the first century. And I look at it and I think, Lord, we want to be more like this Calvary Chapel, faithful to you, to your word, depending on you. Our strength is in you. And Lord, that, um, that, that you would, Father, that you would just sustain us and hang on to that blessed hope that you're going to come and take us out of and away from the hour of tribulation that will come upon the whole earth. We don't know when that will come. We don't know the day or the hour. But we do know times and seasons that we're in. So, Lord, you command us to be watching and waiting for the master's return. And as we come to the communion table right now, as the elements are handed out, that we would just continue in an attitude of worship and thankfulness as we hang on to the elements, partake of them together, that we belong to this new covenant, a covenant of love and sacrifice, your death on the cross. Oh, Lord, we have so much to be thankful for. So may we continue in worship here as we come to the communion table. In Jesus' name.